chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So cool. So they made him a supper there. Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him, that is with Jesus. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. It may be a familiar story to you. It's interesting, John repeats it. He repeats the same story that Matthew and Mark already give us in their gospels. And that's unusual for John to take this, this tender moment at a Shabbat dinner. It's Saturday night. It's Sabbath. They're meeting. It's a Sabbath meal. They're sharing together among friends. This is the eve of the last Passover week of Jesus. And I encourage you to watch him closely said this Wednesday, I said this last hour, watch Jesus closely because this is the last week of his earthly life prior to his death and his burial and his resurrection. It is this week and on the verge at the helm of this week, Jesus knows the cross is looming. His sacrifice is imminent. He knows the pain that's coming. He has a sense of all of that. The wrath is gonna be poured out. That is right within the week for Jesus and watch where his heart goes. Watch what he does. Absolutely amazing, the, the poise and the authority that Jesus has at this time. And the things that he will share are among some of the most significant that he ever taught. Not that, I, that's, that's tough to say because everything he taught is significant. It's all his word. But this becomes all the more rich and profound because of what Jesus is about to go through. Something none of us would ever ever be able to experience, to have this kind of knowledge of what's coming and yet to love the way that he loves. So watch him closely on this. But back to John, he, he joins the disciple whom Jesus loved, the, the writer of this gospel, and we're, I'm convinced it's John, he joins Matthew and Mark to retell the story. Now that wouldn't be a big deal if you were Luke because Luke takes a lot of Matthew and Mark and retells it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, those three go together very well and, and ping off of each other, tell a lot of the same stories, sometimes from slightly different perspectives, but you get these same instances, even chronologically, you get a lot of it the same. John comes along 60 years later and he gives most of what the others did not give, which makes sense. Okay, that's why he would write this gospel. That's why he'd be inspired to do it because he's gonna give us more information and different information and things that we didn't know before. And yet with this story, it's already been told. So you gotta ask the question, why, John, are you retelling this one? He does this a couple of times. You know, he did with the feeding of the 5,000. Obviously that was highly significant. And I think that's the key with John when he repeats something from Matthew Mark and Luke, it's because you really need to pay attention to this. Very, very important. 
What Jesus has to say about John chapter 12, about these eight verses in this story, in Matthew 26, 13, in Mark 14, verse nine, he says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. That's huge. In essence, Jesus took Mary's behavior, her anointing of him with perfume on this Shabbat meal before his execution. He takes this moment and he couples it with the gospel. He says, that's how important this is. I want this story to go along. Wherever the gospel is told in the world, I want this story to accompany it. Guess what? That's what we're doing this morning. We are retelling. We're doing exactly what Jesus said would happen. This is gonna go out and it's gonna be shared over and over and over across 2,000 years. We're still talking about Mary and what she did this morning because Jesus connected it to the gospel. That's huge. But this is also a study in contrast. And this is where the difficulty will come in a little bit as we study on some challenging things to think through and to consider together toward the end this morning. But Wednesday night, I talked about this contrast briefly. I said that this story is as sweet as perfume and as sour as perdition. That this story, these few eight verses are as tender as Mary's touch and they are as tight-fisted as the treachery of Judas. The contrast is truly stark and stunning, a bit surprising. You have sweet intimacy and then you have this attitude of insurrection and the distance between Mary and Judas in this moment is glaring. And I believe we need to see them together. But it got me thinking earlier this week, could that happen here at the bridge? You see, they're in fellowship. This, this meal, this supper is a supper among friends allies, if you will. Disciples of Jesus are there. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. Close friends having a close, intimate dinner all in the same place together. And Mary, Mary, she goes a little overboard. I mean, let's call it what it is. This is a shocking moment, what she does. But she does it out of love for Jesus. And then you've got Judas who, who just, his heart betrays him. His words are so distinctly opposite of, of her behavior, but this is the same group, same fellowship. Could that happen at the bridge? I shared on Wednesday night that I had a nightmare Monday morning. I'm not gonna tell it to you again. You can listen to it if you want to. I think it's the first time in my life I've had a dream from the Lord. Um, I don't normally do that. Uh, the Bible does say old men will dream dreams, so maybe I've just slid into that. I don't know. But it was a nightmare and it was a nightmare in which our fellowship and I could see faces and I knew who was there and I could even tell you, I'm not going to, but I could name names of everybody that was in this, this place all together and half walked out to follow heresy. And it was, it was really, I woke up very upset by that. Not, not, and understand, not because, oh no, I'm gonna lose people from the bridge. It was the heresy issue. It was the losing of hearts. And, and it, was a, it was a stirring dream to remind me that in these last days, brothers and sisters, there are people who purport to be Christians who are not. And there are those who say, oh yeah, I, I go to church, I follow the way of the truth, but when push comes to shove and when it gets difficult and it's getting tougher, there are those who are just gonna say, I'm done. And I hope it's not you. I hope it's not you because this life is a blip. Eternity is coming. 
The kingdom is on, it's right there. And we're on our way. So hang in there with Jesus. If you don't like me, go find another church, that's fine. But hang in there with Jesus. What happens in this story, we have what I call juxtaposed hearts. One who is passionate about her Lord and one who is intending to betray him. And the two are in the same room. And you know what that shows me? Jesus is the foil for their feelings. What do you mean? I mean, the presence of Jesus is gonna eventually cause your heart to emerge. How you feel about him, is that's, that's the whole thing in a nutshell coming down to the end of the age, how you feel about him, what you believe and know about him, that's gonna emerge from your heart and, and you're gonna know and, and that'll be it. And that's what happens here between Mary on the one hand and Judas on the other. Their feelings, their innermost thoughts, their hearts cannot remain hidden where Jesus is present. And the things of the heart are gonna be revealed. Well, at heart, this story is really all about Jesus. And I love stories like that. But let's start with Mary. So here's Mary, and we're gonna start with the first part of this. We'll do this in two parts, Mary and then Judas. So the first part, talk about Mary and the, and the sweet scent of devotion, what we see in her. I, I need you to know which Mary this is, because there are several in the New Testament, four or five Marys that are mentioned, and, and it can be kind of confusing. For a long time, the Catholic Church connected this Mary with Mary Magdalene with a sinful woman, three different women, by the way, but connected them all as one, comparing this story to a similar story in Luke chapter seven. This is very clearly Miriam, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And she's, she's distinct from all the other Marys. This isn't Mary Magdalene. This isn't Mary Ma, that is Mary the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary, the wife of Clopas. This is Mary, the sister to Martha and Lazarus, or Miriam. Again, that, that's the Hebrew name, Miriam. Anytime you see Mary in the New Testament, it's Miriam as a, as a Hebrew woman. So this is the same Mary who every time we see her, she's in the same place in the Bible. Every time you see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. I love that about her. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, she is sitting learning at the feet of Jesus. In John chapter 11, verse 32, she falls down and weeps at the feet of Jesus. And then here in John chapter 12, we'll see in verse three, she kneels down to anoint the feet of Jesus. And that is this Mary. By the way, where are you with respect to him? With respect to Jesus? Where do you see yourself? Uh, are you trying to go head to head with him in a battle of the wits? You'll lose. You will lose. Trying to outthink him, trying to work through stuff, trying to make sense of it all. Maybe even in your own personal life, you cannot make sense of what Jesus is doing. Let me remind you that God said, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. Isaiah 55 verse eight. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what that means? It means sometimes you're not gonna figure it out. It means sometimes you're not gonna logic or reason your way into the answer. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. We can't always think the way he thinks. Now, praise God, if you trust in Jesus, Paul says we have the mind of Christ. 
so we can begin to understand and think as he thinks and reason as he reasons and understand as he understands, but he's still God and I'm still flesh. And the, the distance between the two of us in terms of mentality and reason, it, it's vast. So if you're trying to go head to head, I wouldn't advise that. Maybe, maybe you think, well, I'm at his side. Remember the old bumper sticker, and I know this is years ago, maybe I'm dating myself a bit, but the God is my co-pilot? Yeah, you ain't driving. You're not even in the passenger seat. You're lucky if you're in the back of the station wagon in the 1970s looking out at the cars behind you. That's how I spent most vacations. You know, and then you'd make faces and stuff, but then you couldn't turn around, and, and then now you just had to look at them. <laughs> I saw more of America as we're passing by, looking out the back. You know what? We follow him. Give up the controls. He is the one leading. We're just on the ride, and it's the ride of your life. The Bible says the wind blows wherever it pleases. You do hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. God is not my co-pilot. God is leading and I'm riding along. I'm one of the kids in the back. Maybe you're not going head to head. Maybe you're not like trying to be side by side, mano y mano with Jesus. Maybe you are at his feet. And that is the best place to be, at the feet of Jesus. And you gotta decide, because we've said this many times before, we will all be at the feet of Jesus. So you can choose now to do so of your own free will, to be at Jesus' feet, to worship him, to love him, or you will find yourself at Jesus' feet, perhaps in terror at the realization that he is Lord, because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's everyone right now who, who believe, Everyone who has died in Christ, died in faith, and everyone who has denied him will fall down before him and say, Jesus is Lord. So you have a choice. Praise God, you have time right now to decide for yourself to call him Lord and to be at his feet. If you don't do it now, you'll do it then. Mary chose to make the feet of Jesus her familiar place, as we see again and again. Watch the story. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. So again, if you back it up, we're on Saturday, Shabbat. It's a Shabbat meal, a Sabbath meal. And he came to Bethany. This is specifically the Bethany where Lazarus was. It's not what they call Bethany beyond Jordan or Ma'avrot. That was where Jesus was kind of staying for a little while. But now he's come back on the other side of the Mount of Olives at Bethany, at Lazarus' place. He's hanging out with Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. What a sight. Can you imagine? I mean, everybody knew Lazarus was dead four days in the grave. Everybody knew this. To walk in the front door and there he is reclining with Jesus at the table. Perhaps Lazarus looks up at you and goes, hey, what's up? And you're like, what's up? You're alive, dude. He is alive. This is Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. This is the same Lazarus who goes from the tomb to the table. Sepulcher to supper. This is very unusual, folks. I, I hope you understand that this does not normally happen. <laughs> Mom calls supper and Uncle Dead Guy comes you know, walking in. I mean, this is what? 
and he's reclining there with Jesus. By the way, Matthew and Mark tell us that this party is at the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper, which means either Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are very close to Simon, so they kind of pair up with him to have this Sabbath meal at at his house, or perhaps some think, and I, I like this, that Simon the leper was actually Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' dad, that he was their father. And so this is the family home. It's the house of Simon the leper. Either way, whether he was dad or a dear friend, Simon the leper, uh, no one would go to a a party at Simon the leper's house. That would be like saying, hey, at the Crawfords this next week, we're gonna have a COVID party. We're all sick with COVID. We've all got high fevers. We we, we lost uh, Christopher already. but, But come on over. So we're all just going to hang out together and cough and get sick. It's great. In the first century, we would not go to dinner at the house of Simon the leper. But this is where it is, which tells us that Simon used to be a leper. And Lazarus used to be a dead guy. What a party. What a great place to celebrate with a once leprous man now clean and, and a once dead guy now alive. So just trying to set the table here a little bit so you see what's going on. And and maybe you noticed that Martha was serving. Well, it's Martha, right? It's what she does. I told you before when we saw Martha rushing out to Jesus when he came four days after Lazarus died, don't be so hard on Martha. This is a woman of great faith. This is a woman who rushed out to Jesus. This is the woman who said, I believe in the resurrection. And then when Jesus clarified, I am the resurrection, she absolutely agreed. This is a woman of great faith, a woman who loves Jesus, a woman who, by the way, if you look all the way back in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it says, now as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Martha was the one who invited Jesus in, not Mary. I'm impressed with Martha, and I think we all ought to be. And yes, Martha is, again, serving as she did in Luke chapter 10. Let me just repeat the story to you. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Oh, yeah, the spiritual one. And verse 40, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha... Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Literally, you are anxious and distracted. Exactly. (laughs) Martha, chill. But one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Listen, when Jesus says Mary chose the good part, you know what that word part really is? Portion. Mary has chosen the good portion. You're over here putting all the snacks together, but Mary's already eating. She's chosen the good portion. That's the portion that you want. Now stay with me with Martha just for a second here. Jesus did not tell her to stop serving. So good news to those of you with the gift of service, don't stop serving. You find your joy in service. You you find your fulfillment in serving. This is not a story in Luke chapter 10 about serving being wrong and sitting at Jesus' feet being right as though those two were juxtaposed. They are not. Truth is, if we were all Marys and we were all sitting at Jesus' feet, we would never have dinner. Someone's got to serve the meal, right? 
The gift of service is a gift of the Lord. It's what he gives to you. He puts on your heart. The problem was not Martha's serving. The problem was Martha's anxiety. The problem was that Martha was distracted and this was, and, and all of a sudden all this became more important than the one she was serving. So Jesus says, let's reset your thinking, Martha, and focus on me. And I can't prove this, but I really think when we get over to John chapter 12, and in, in verse three there, or verse two, where we see Martha serving, I think she's serving with her portion. I think Martha, she's there, here's Jesus, here's my brother Lazarus alive, I am gonna serve them because that's what my heart wants me to do. And it's a good thing, and I think she's enjoying her portion while she serves. And that's the key. Servants of the Lord, don't do it religiously, don't do it because you have to, don't do it because you ought to be serving, do it because you love Jesus and you will have your portion. You need your portion. Like we told Chris yesterday morning, we were leaving for a soccer match early in the morning to go down to Langley. And as we were heading out the door, it's like, Chris, did you eat anything? Nah, why didn't you eat anything, Chris? I'm not hungry. He's never hungry in the morning. We're like, what energy are you gonna have to play soccer? Gatorade. So we're still working on the whole idea of breakfast. Uh, and you need the energy, Jesus. Jesus is your energy to serve. Jesus is your portion. So those of you who are so servant-hearted and so focused on serving in the fellowship, serving in the world, this is where your heart beats. Don't forget your portion is Jesus. So back in chapter 12, Mary was serving, Lazarus is reclining, and all of a sudden, something stirring happens. Mary, Miriam, then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Wow. Mary, in Hebrew, she mashaks the Mashiach. In Greek, she creos the Christ. In English, she anoints the anointed one. How precious a moment is this? This anointing of, of Mary to Jesus, she, she just does what, this is who he is. He is the anointed. And as she anoints him, there is a recognition of Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Isaiah 61, verses one and two, that Jesus repeats in Luke chapter four, at the beginning of his ministry, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Let me break that down for you. Are you afflicted? Are you brokenhearted? Are you a captive or a prisoner of something? Is your day long and difficult? Jesus was anointed to bring good news to those of you who are afflicted. He, he was anointed to bandage up the broken heart, to bring liberty to the captive, freedom to the prisoner, and the favorable day of the Lord to those of you who are just having a lousy time. And more than that, the favorable day of the Lord, he came to bring grace to a world of judgment and intolerance and anger and vitriol that we see just continuing to rise up. Mary just confirms in this moment what Jesus came to do. 
He's the anointed one now that she anoints. But why again did Jesus say that this moment would accompany the gospel? And I think there's an answer for this. I'll, I'll give you three answers. I'll probably come up with more. Jesus takes her actions, her anointing, and he, he pairs it with the gospel. Why? Number one, honor. Honor. Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel goes out, there is honor. God said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor. So if you just, by speaking the gospel, you are honoring Jesus, you're bringing honor to the Lord, and he will honor that. He will honor you in that. Even if someone dishonors you or disses you in trying to bring the truth of Jesus, God's gonna honor you for it. That's part of the promise. Wherever this gospel is preached, she's gonna be honored. Mary is gonna be remembered, Jesus said. By the way, don't confuse this story. I already hinted at this before, but don't confuse this with the sinful woman who washed the feet of Jesus with her tears and dried them with her hair, and then anointed him with perfume. That story is in Luke chapter seven. These are two separate events, two completely different stories. And all you have to do is, is line them up beside each other. One happens at the home of Simon the Pharisee. This is at the home of Simon the leper. These are two different Simons. Simon was a common name. One is a simple woman who comes in from outside. The other one is Mary, who's part of the party. She's there, part of the gathering, the fellowship. One of them has a sinful woman who comes rushing in and anoints Jesus in sorrowful repentance. The other one is Jesus' dear friend Mary who anoints him from an act or in an act of pure honor. She just wants to honor Jesus. And so the story is told alongside the gospel. Here we are doing it again. Secondly, secondly, worship. Why is this story paired with the gospel? Because this is worship. Mary is worshiping Jesus in the sweetest way. I love the picture that we get of the sweet fragrance that's filling the house as she is anointing her Lord. And you know it made some people uncomfortable. Worship does. You know there were guys in the room going, Mary, put your hands down. What you kneeling for? What's all this work? Come on, this is dinner, man. Save it for Sunday. And even then, keep a lid on it. This is Mary just worshiping Jesus. She gives up what is likely her most prized possession. Now, in our culture, maybe we wouldn't get this so much, but this, this bottle of perfume, this is, for one thing, highly expensive. John uses the word costly. And this is, this is not just, well, yeah, it was, it was a little pricey. You know, she probably should have gotten it, gotten it like, I don't know, fragrance.com or something and saved a little money. No, this is highly expensive as we'll see. And she gives this up to worship him. This pure nard becomes the substance of her pure devotion. Remember what Jesus said to another woman back in John chapter four, that an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And unfortunately, we've heard that verse so many times over many, many years of church. If you've been involved with church, you kind of make it a little more religious than it was spoken. No, worship is spirit. It's who you are. And truth, it's genuine. It's authentic. It's real. You're not worshiping out of a sense of religious obligation. You're worshiping because you can't help it. He's Jesus. 
I love to worship him. I want to worship him. To be at his feet, to anoint him with this perfume, of course Mary would do that. It's an act of worship. And note this again in verse three, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. A whole house, that's worship. A few years ago, uh, I started uh, picking up and, and Jake has, has joined me with this and I'm glad <clears throat> because his office stinks. But um, no, I'm kidding. I started buying Yankee Candle plugins. You know, the, the, you can plug them in and then you, you can refill them with a little fragrance and you can put that in there. My favorites are like, you know, there's the Christmas one and then there's the one in the fall that smells like pumpkin spice and all that. So I love those things. And, and I started doing that primarily because when people come to talk to me in my office, I don't want them to sit there with Eau de la Rick. I'd really rather they have something nice to smell. So, are you with me? These Yankee Candle plugins, I had them in my office and, and Eva came up one time and she goes, man, it smells so good up here. What is that? I'm like, it's me. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm like, it's, it's, my, it's my Yankee Candle plug-in there. And she goes, boy, wouldn't that be cool to have those all over the church? And I said, yes, yes, it would. Yes, let's do that. And we bought several and we put one out there in the foyer and one over here in this room and, and we put them around so the whole church now was smelling like fall and pumpkin spice and I was so happy and then started getting a little pushback. Some people saying, you know, this is killing my allergies. I walk in for worship, I'm crying, I'm snotty, it's just not good. Can you please do something about this? So we unplugged. It's okay. The fragrance that we need to fill this house is the fragrance of worship. True worship is a fragrance. True worship fills the house, fills the whole place. It sweetens our fellowship. It, it enhances our mission. Carson says the mention of this fragrance filling the house suggests not only extravagant love, but that the fragrance of the act, listen, will extend far beyond the event itself. Do you realize that? When we gather and we worship, oh, we just did four songs, five songs this morning. Yeah, but your worship this morning will extend far beyond this event. And it does in so many different ways. It affects your heart. Uh, it, it was so good this morning as I came in. I do what I, I think maybe some of you do when you're, when you're coming to gather on a Sunday morning. You're trying to get your head in the game, you know? You're trying to shake off the stuff. You're driving here and you're thinking, okay, I got all these things, but Lord, help me be focused on you. I need to clear my head. And so often that does not happen for me until we start to worship. And then all of a sudden, I, I, I remember who's in charge. And I remember who's glorious. And I remember who loves me even if I'm stupid. And I remember all these good things about Jesus. And, and, and that's when it changes. And, and then I can come up here and talk about him so much easier because I've worshiped. The, the, the moment extends beyond the moment. But it will this afternoon. You're gonna be at home and you're gonna start going, better is one day in his courts. And it's gonna change your perspective. And you're gonna be out with people during the week, and you're gonna remember a worship song, or there's even something, you may not even remember the song, but there's something we sang that got into your heart, and this week, at a tough time, you're just gonna go, oh, but God is so good. God is so good. Because the fragrance fills the house, and it extends far beyond the moment. Let me just caution you if you are allergic to that scent. Are you? Are you one who says, we need to unplug because, you know, this is too much. This worship is a little too demonstrative. Or it's, you know, John, how dare he say, you guys are a little quiet this morning. 
Come on, come on. You notice how everybody starts clapping and singing? Oh, yeah, that's right. We are supposed to be joyful in this. I wonder if there was anyone going, yeah, that's not good. I, I, my allergies, you know. I'm just not into worship. Well, then you're not into Jesus. Not into worship. Well, then you lack the third thing that is coupled here with the gospel. The gospel will go out and this story will go with it because this is honor and this is worship. And there's a third thing, faith. Faith. If you don't like worship, you got a faith problem. Faith. The word for this nard, this says a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. I've always thought if, if I was a perfume maker or had a perfume company, I don't think I would market it as nard. That just doesn't sound good to me. But, but it's, it's from the word nardu or nardos, which is a plant. The nardos plant, which is along the Ganges River in East India, a highly expensive perfume. In fact, some of your Bibles might say spike nard, and that's because it's a very spiky plant, and they literally take the spikes of the plant to make this perfume. In India, not in Israel, to get a, a bottle of this, for Mary to have this in Israel, this is of great expense, this nardos, this perfume. And in the first century, this highly expensive bottle was often the way that parents would invest in their daughter's future. It was the dowry. This is likely Mary's dowry. You know, the, the wedding price, what the, the daughter brought to the table when she was marrying the man, there was some kind of dowry that was made. And this was probably Mary's dowry, which makes it all the more precious and rather giving a daughter a stock or a savings account or saying, here, here's your hope chest. No, no, here's your bottle of perfume that is so valuable when you meet Mr. Wright, it can be given, it can be sold. You will have, you know, go on a, go on a honeymoon to Hawaii, man. I mean, you got it covered. Highly expensive. It's also a pound, a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. The word pound here. It's in the Greek, it's, it's litron, but that just is an alliteration from the Latin word libra. A libra in Latin, in Roman culture, was 11 ounces. Ladies, let me ask you, how big are your perfume bottles at home? A quarter of an ounce, maybe? If you got three ounces, it's like, phew, don't dump all that at once. You know, that's a lot of smell right there. 11 ounces, this is a big bottle. This is huge, and you gotta remember that. That's important too, but it's also pure. And remember I said, along with the gospel, you have honor, this act of honor. You have this act of worship. It's an act of faith. Note this, the word for pure, for this pure uh, perfume, this pure nard, is pistikes. And piste, or piece to case, and it means genuine, it means authentic, so pure is a good definition, but the root word of piece to case is pistis, faith. Faith. That should tell you something about faith. What is faith? Well, it's kind of a religious thing that I do. No, it's not. Faith is pure. Faith is genuine. Faith is authentic. Faith is my attitude toward Jesus. I trust him. I just trust him. I've often exchanged the word trust for faith when in Bible teaching because we think faith, and, and again, we go down this religious road, but it's not. Mary is not doing a religious thing. This is not a ritual. This is weird. 
This is bizarre. You didn't do this kind of thing at a Sabbath meal. Why does she do it? Because she has, she honors him, she worships him, and she just trusts him. She trusts him so much that she's willing to express this highly valued, overflowing act of true faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 says, the proof of your faith is more precious than gold, which is perishing. This is a precious faith as Mary pours out. Honor, worship, faith, a sweet moment. And for Mary, it's, it's deeply unaffected humility. I mean, she's not concerned about any other thing but Jesus, regardless of the cost. And it's not just the cost of the perfume. When I say regardless of the cost, it's also the cost of her reputation because she does something here that nobody did in the first century. No respectable woman. When she wipes her feet with her hair, it means she had to let her hair down to do it. Now, if your hair's down this morning, ladies, it's fine. You know, pastor's wife's hair down, so you're okay. No, it's not a cultural thing for us. We don't even think twice about it. But for a woman of the first century to let her hair down, to let her tresses fall in front of men in a company like that, you didn't do it. This would be embarrassing. The prostitutes may do it. But for Mary then to let down her hair and begin to wipe, I mean, it's just, it's shocking. No doubt you could have heard a gasp from one or two of the, or, or two of the apostles there that morning. <gasps> I think she's going a little too far here. Honor and worship and faith. This is a beautiful, authentic faith moment. But don't just listen to the word because you can do all kinds of word play. Look at what she did. How do you know that this was a moment of faith? I get the honor. I understand the worship, but faith. What kind of faith is Mary expressing here? First to answer that um, Matthew and Mark tell us that she anointed Jesus' head. And John says his feet. So I'll get back to faith in just a second, but there's a contradiction, right? It's one of those biblical contradictions. I love when people come up with this stuff. Well, it says this here and it says this here. And I'm like, yeah, what's the problem? Matthew and Mark say she anointed his head. Well, yeah. Because Matthew and Mark are focused on the kingship of Jesus and they're thinking about the fact that an anointed man was anointed king and they anointed his head. But notice also in this that she poured out the entire bottle, 11 ounces. That would be a whole lot more than you would pour on someone's head. Furthermore, then John comes along and says she anointed his feet and dried his feet with her hair. What are we talking about? Mary anointed Jesus head to toe. And Jesus even says, Matthew 26, 12, for when she poured this perfume on my body. So now we have the full picture. She anointed Jesus' head, his body, and his feet. Head to toe anointing. Why would someone do that? You did that for burial. Very common burial practice. Anoint the body head to toe. Verse seven, Jesus says, skip ahead and look at this, let her alone so that she may keep it. That is what she's done. Keep this moment, keep this practice for the day of my burial. And there it is. There's Mary's faith. She pre-anoints Jesus for his burial in less than a week's time. That's faith. Wait a minute, wait a minute, okay. You're saying that because of faith, Mary 
anointed Jesus for his burial. How could she have known? How could she possibly have known that Jesus was about to die? You mean other than Jesus telling them over and over that he was about to die? He was pretty clear. But even if she didn't, please listen closely to this. Mary believes Jesus even if she doesn't know. Did Mary know she was pre-anointing him for his burial? I don't know. I'm not sure that she did. But she knew she was supposed to anoint him. And that's faith. Faith is acting on something whether you know why you're doing it or not. Faith is you're in the grocery store and there's someone down the aisle and you get this sense that the Lord wants you to go ask that person if you can pray for them and faith says, okay, and off you go. You don't know why, you don't know the person. It's a lack of faith that stands there arguing with God. Ah, That's weird. That, That had to just be me in my own head. Faith is easy. Lack of faith is hard. See, see, faith is just, you just go, you just do it because you know that you know that you know in your spirit man, in your spirit woman, you know this is what you're supposed to do, so you act on it. You just do it. A lack of faith, you argue with God, you rebel against it, you struggle with it, you, I just don't know. Mm-mm. All the struggling, we, we, we even use the term sometimes faith struggles. I'm not sure faith is a struggle. Faith is trusting Jesus. So when he asks you to do something, you just do it. I've told you before that back when we started this church fellowship, one or two people came up to me and said, wow, you you and Cheryl must have had great faith to start that church. Let me just be clear with you. No. I mean, it wasn't hard. Someone would say, well, yeah, it took faith. Okay, well, then faith is easy because it was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. Jeff and Penelope, you guys know that. This was not a struggle. This was like, oh, This is what God wants us to do. Let's just do that. Okay, and we just started doing it. Rod, you know that. We showed up at Rod's house, never having met him before. It's a little weird. Hi. It's like sitting in the back seat of the station wagon. And and we talked, and, and that was Saturday, and Wednesday we had our first Bible study. We'd never met before. That sounds really hard. Was it hard, Rod? No. It was easy. That's faith. And, and, and listen to me, that doesn't mean, oh, so Rick is such this, Rick and Rod and, and Jeff and Penelope and Cheryl, these are gloriously faithful people. Faith isn't about being glorious. Faith is just about trusting Jesus. And when you do, it's easy. And when you struggle with it or you don't, life is hard. And that's really the difference. And so Mary doing what she did, she just knew she was supposed to. She's just acting on her love for Jesus by faith. And it was a great faith because Jesus then reveals what her faith was about. Yeah, she is supposed to do this. Yes, she was supposed to anoint me. Why? For my burial. Did Mary know? I don't know. It doesn't matter. She believed him. She trusted in him. And faith doesn't see with the eyes. Faith doesn't reason with the brain. Faith just trusts that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's asking me to do what he's asking me to do. And I don't have to know why. I don't have to know what it's gonna look like. I don't have to know the end game. All I have to know is Jesus wants me to do it. Mary had amazing faith in this moment. Faith moves us all to act out of simple affection for Jesus. And so you just do because at a spiritual level, you just know you're supposed to. And again, that is easy. It's difficult when I fight him on it. Now, as the fragrance of Mary's sweet faith is still hanging in the air of the house, suddenly another odor emerges. 
and it is the stench of betrayal. Look at verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Judas obviously knows the value of fine marketables. He knows exactly what this perfume bottle is worth. Why? Because that's where Judas's heart is. Now, you need to listen very carefully here because we're gonna look at Judas. And if you have heard in church teaching and in Christian teaching that Judas was simply swayed by nationalism, that Judas was just misguided in his desire to get the kingdom rolling and that he really didn't know that it was gonna, no, no, that is not true. Judas was a devil. And the Bible is clear about it and we've got to wash our brains of all that, all that fluffy teaching that says Judas was a good guy who was just deceived. No, Judas made a choice to betray Jesus. And I'll prove it to you. You Just watch, because John, this is one of the things John does in retelling this story that we kind of miss from the others because the others don't mention specifically that it's Judas leading the charge. John does. And John explains something here we need to see. First of all, that this was 300 denarii. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii? You know how much 300 denarii is worth? That's a year's salary. How much would you spend on a bottle of 11, on 11 ounces of perfume? Would you take your entire and save a year's salary and then go buy a bottle? That's how much this was worth. When we say highly expensive, this was an entire year's wage. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. I shall always feel obliged to Judas for figuring up the price of that box of costly nard. <laughs> he did it to blame her, but we will let his figure stand and think all the more of her. I should never have known what it cost, nor would you either, if Judas had not marked it down in his ledger. In verse six, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer or literally take out what was put into it. He's ripping them off. He's been doing this, how long? I don't know. As long as he was in charge of the money, he was stealing from Jesus. He was a thief. He had intentions of betrayal. And money, by the way, money was the primary motivating factor for Judas. You know that Paul says the money's the root of all kinds of evil? You know why? Look at Judas. The betrayal, the evil, the welcoming of satanic work in his life was because he loved money. He wanted money. He was looking out for himself, looking to cash in. 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And if you want to look that up in the Bible dictionary, Judas' picture is right there. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This was what Judas was all about. How high a value do you put on financial security? I'm just asking you to, ask, to answer that for yourself. Not to shame anyone, not to guilt trip you, but how much is your portfolio worth to you? How secure do you feel in what you have in the bank? Because God tonight could say your life is required of you and it could mean nothing. 
Or you could be like the 78-year-old investor who I read about this last week who called today's stock market the worst bear market he has seen in his lifetime. This is a long-time investor, and he's saying, we are on the precipice of some bad news financially. How much stock do you put in money and in financial security? Let me just make a suggestion to all of us here. Whether you have a lot or have a little, take the first 10% of your income, the Bible calls it the first fruits, and give it to the Lord. Just give it to him. Let your money be where your faith is. I can't do that, Rick. You ought to look at my budget. I know, I look at my budget every, every month. I go over the numbers every month. I've told you before, there are many times I look at it and go, we could really use that this month. And the Lord says, go ahead. And in essence, I recognize, oh, okay, so I can take care of myself or I can allow you to provide. And that's, that's the faith decision we're making. The reason I even bring money up at all, aside from the fact that it's such a picture of the Judas heart, is that if you want your faith to increase, then you need to let it go. And I really don't care if you give it here at the bridge or give it to some other church, just do it. You wanna make a commitment to tithe somewhere else so that you're not, you know, well, I'm not gonna do that. Pastor Rick's just trying to get more money for the church. No, God's got us. God will take care of the bridge. You give to the Lord because you trust him. And in your giving, you're gonna find something happen. You're gonna find that the stronghold of money in your life will break and your faith will increase. And I think dramatically, it is so much fun to watch God do things you couldn't possibly do. Listen, the tighter the fist, the lesser the faith. Well, that's not fair. I have, I have great faith. Then loosen up. <laughs> I trust him for everything. Okay, show me. Show him. Don't show me. Show him. The tighter the fist, the lesser the faith, and the greater the loss. And that we see in Judas. In fact, Matthew and Mark report an ironic word for Judas. In this moment, something comes out of his mouth as Judas leads the charge against Mary's action of faith. Mark 14, verse 4, why has this perfume been wasted? Yeah. Put yourself in Jesus' place, reclined at the table. Mary has just shown worship and honor and faith by anointing you, and Judas goes, what a waste. Really? Okay. You think it was a waste for her to anoint me? Interesting. Several of the apostles, were told in Matthew and Mark, were all piling on, by the way. They were all opposed to Mary wasting this money, but Judas is the one leading the charge, and that is the word that Jesus used for Judas. Waste. John 17, verse 12, the word waste is apolia. It is also translated perdition. And Jesus said, when I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. He's praying to the Father, your name which you have given me, I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, the son of apolia, the son of waste, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. That's a little unsettling, isn't it? Wait a minute. Judas betrayed Jesus so the scripture would be fulfilled, which means God knew ahead of time. And did he prepare Judas for this? Was Judas born into this world to be the betrayer and go to hell for it? Is that, is that the God you believe in? <laughs> Whoa, those are a lot of questions all at once. Slow down. <laughs> what does that mean? I will tell you in just a second, but watch this. Mary honored Jesus. Judas devalued him. 
What a waste. Why was this perfume wasted? Really, really? So is Jesus a waste for you, Judas? Is perfume for the precious Savior garbage? Is it honor? And is the honor of worship and worship of Jesus, is that nonsense here in this place? Is faith in him rubbish? Some would say so. Some would say it's a waste of your time to be here this morning. A waste, is it? It's perdition to have that view. First Peter 1, 6, again, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not a waste. Brothers and sisters, you are not wasting your time you are being prepared for something amazing. Down in verse seven, Jesus responds to this attitude. What a waste. Jesus says, let her alone. <laughs> I love that he defends her. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Judas, let her have this. Don't steal this moment from her. Don't interrupt her faith. You ever been in a situation like that where your heart is just bursting with faith and someone says something negative, maybe even a Christian? I was at a, a, a party, this was several, several years ago now, way back, and uh, it was just a, a party, ca casual party, having dinner together, a bunch of Christians, and we were all hanging out, and, and we started to talk about, a couple of us started to talk about something, and Jeff, you were there, you may remember this. We were talking about something spiritual, and one of the other Christians in the room said, ah, oh, don't make this about work just talking about the Bible, I wasn't thinking. Sometimes some of you will come up to me and go, hey, Rick, in the middle of the week, maybe you run into me at a coffee shop and you'll say, hey, I got a Bible question for you. Is that okay? I, I, know, you're, I know you're, you know, I know you're not working. What? <laughs> Find me on my day off. Can I ask you a question about the church? I know, I know you're off. What are you talking about? This is our life. This is, this is not work. This is, this is what we do. It's what we talk about. It's what we, it's what we share. And I, I just kind of got way off. Oh, don't interrupt her faith. <laughs> Judas, don't take this away from her. Leave her alone. Because Mary's honoring him and Judas is devaluing him. Mary is worshiping Jesus and Judas is selling him out. And that's the thing you gotta understand about Judas. With, with more awareness than Mary, Judas is positioning for the death of Christ. You hear what I said? Mary, by faith, didn't know she was preparing him for, for his burial, but she did it because she loved him. Judas is preparing him for his burial because he hated him. He knew what he was doing. We're told back in verse four, who was intending to betray him. John opens up the box and says, Judas was not just a good guy who got deceived by patriotism. No, Judas decided to betray Jesus. Judas was a thief. Judas became, he earned the title of betrayer. He's the one who sent Jesus to the cross by betraying him to the Jewish authority. Judas chose all of this. The thief had a murderer's heart. Now, some of you might go, wow, that's, that's so judgmental. I'm just telling you what it says. Speak the truth in love. This is the truth. Judas decided to do this. Judas chose this path. My friends, and, and now I need you to listen to me, and, and if this offends you, I didn't mean it. <laughs> Wayne said that last week. I think that's great. 
If, if you get offended, I'll just say, well, I didn't mean it that way. No. <laughs> Listen really carefully because I, I gotta be very honest about some things going on right now in our country and it has to do with murder is the theft of life. Murder is the theft of life. And I think you know where I'm going. You need to pay attention. It appears that our Supreme Court's about to overturn Roe v. Wade, to which I say, praise the Lord. Now, understand from a purely technical perspective in overturning Roe v. Wade, what they're talking about and what looks like will happen is the Supreme Court will say, this is not a federal issue. We're gonna kick it back to the states, which means then states can vote and there will be many states in the United States that will vote pro-choice, pro-abortion. And there will be some that will vote not to allow abortion, and then people will have a choice of where to go. So that, technically speaking, and not to take all the wind out of the sails of, of a victory for pro-life people like myself, and I think we should be pro-life, I'm not sure, and if, I'll tell you what, if you are a Christian and you're pro-choice, I would ask you to please come talk to me, because I'm not sure how that works. But stay with me, don't walk out on me, don't, don't storm out, and, and don't pick up a picket sign. There's plenty of that going on right now. Just listen for a second. I want you to take note, as you probably have already been doing, of the response and the behavior of the words being used, of the bitterness and the craziness of people who support selling out innocent life for personal rights because that's what's happening. That's what this whole abortion debate in America is about. It's saying, I have, or a woman has, certain inalienable rights, and if a baby comes along, that baby has none. That's, that's the abortion agenda. And I am watching this this week, and you can't tell me otherwise, because it's everywhere. I've been watching on the news, I've been reading about it. We drove down to Chris's soccer match on Saturdays. We're heading down the island, coming to different points and, and places, people out with protest signs, one that says, abortion is life. What? That's what I said. What? Are you, how, that, that makes no sense. That is saying murder is life. Taking a life is life. That, that is a complete oxymoron. It, 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 it's, it's insane. And what we're seeing is vitriol and hysteria and anger and hatred and people coming unglued over their possible loss of the right to kill unborn humans. Now, someone would say, but Rick, what about this caveat? And what about this situation? Look, we can talk about all those minutias, but those are not the main issue. The main issue of innocent children being killed or aborted because a woman chooses not to deal with it. It's still a life. In fact, whatever the situation is, you're still talking about a life. And to me, this is, this is, I don't know, I think the church has been silent for way too long about this. And I'm not just talking about me here on a Sunday morning with mostly people who agree with me. This is not hard, just so you know. It's not difficult for me to share this with you. If I stopped the car, got out of the van, and walked over to one of the picketers yesterday, that might have been a little tough. Might have been a little contentious. But here's the deal. Abortion rights are championed in the Judas heart. And I don't say that to hurt anybody's feelings, but you have to understand the choice that is being made. It is a choice, as I said, it's the theft of life. That is a Judas heart issue. 
That's what Judas was all about. And by the way, and I, whatever you think about our current president, I, I, I just gotta say this. He is showing his true colors right now. And in ways that surprised me, I honestly, I didn't vote for Joe Biden, but he became president, so I said, okay, he's president. I always do, okay, he's president, Lord, be with him. Lord, guide him. Lord, save our country, whatever you gotta do with this man who's, who's now in office. But early on, I've kind of had the attitude that he's kind of a paper tiger, you know? That there's really, it's really the people behind him driving the agenda, and he's just kind of the, the, sim, the figurehead. So, so I almost gave him a pass, not now. Because I'll tell you what, stuff coming out of his mouth. Like this last week, saying mainstream religious views historically question the beginning of life. You know what he did? The same thing that Judas did. We should have given this to the poor. He made it a religious issue. He played the religion card. And, and Joe Biden played the religion card to say, hey, hey, good religious people don't know when life begins, so, so it's all good. Well, let's push this just a little bit further. If you're not offended now, give me a second. <laughs> you may or may not be aware of this, but in the California state legislature, there is a bill, some of you already know where I'm going, called AB2223, which deals with perinatal death. So I'm gonna break this down for you really quickly. It deals with perinatal death. That is a child that's born, stillborn, a child within the first 28 days of, of birth who uh, dies of SIDS. Listen, for any other reason, the mother cannot be charged. You know what that is? It is abortion to 28 days after birth. It's infanticide. And that is in the legislature. Gavin Newsom jumped on it. The second there was this leak about Roe v. Wade, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, jumped on it and said, we gotta do something, we gotta get out ahead of this. And the bill, and you can read it, California Legislative Bill AB2223 allows the murder of newborns and the mother cannot be charged up to 28 days after the birth. This is abortion now into 28 days of an infant's life. And that's what's going on in our country. That's why this is an issue. It is not, it is about sin. Do you understand that? This, this is not about political positions or this camp or that camp. This is about what is right and what is wrong. And it is wrong whether our culture says so or not. And we have to be willing to stand up in this world. It is our silence that is allowing these things to go forward. So in how you vote, in what you say, in what you speak to your friends, I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to go out and be all hateful and mean, blah, 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 you know, with, with people at work, but to speak the truth in love isn't an unborn life more significant or at least equally significant to the mother's life. They're both life. And I'll tell you what, in, in Rick's book anyway, and I think it's in this book too, that life is more important than my rights. Judas comes along, let's get back to this, murder is the theft of life. Judas tries to make it a religious issue. It wasn't a religious issue for Judas. He could care less about poor people. That's not what his deal was. It's just his heart emerges and says, Ugh! and that's what you see happen. 
when the right is challenged, when the right is denigrated, or, or when good things are done in the name of Jesus and someone responds with this kind of anger, which is, again, what we're seeing going on right now. That tells you something. That doesn't come from a good place. Jesus immediately responded to him. In verse eight, he says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. The poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and the poor in your land. That, that is, when Jesus says the poor you will always have with you, he's, he's not like saying, yeah, people are always gonna be poor. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15, which says, you will always have people that you can care for. You will always have poor people that you can look after and provide help to and love. We should, we need to. That is what the church is supposed to be about. You'll always have the poor with you. By the way, is Joel here? Okay, Joel said to me last week, and this cracked me up, but he's so spot on on this. He goes, you know what? When Jesus said the poor you will always have with me, he just proved that communism will never work. I'm like, bro, that'll preach. He's absolute, socialism isn't gonna work. Well, we gotta take care of everyone and take care of the poor. The poor you will always have with you. Jesus just blew it out of the water. But again, that's not to say the poor are not our concern. It's to say that Jesus is the first and best that we have to offer this world. Jesus is our offering. Peter and John are coming into the beautiful gate of the temple and there's a lame man there and he's begging alms, alms for the poor. And Peter goes, bro, I don't have any money. It's my paraphrase. I don't have any cash on me right now, but what I do have, I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And he stood up and jumped and danced all through the temple because Peter knew what he needed. It wasn't more money. It wasn't more gifts or alms. It was Jesus and because he had Jesus, he could now walk. And my friends, no amount of food, shelter, or denarii is gonna walk a person into heaven. We have Jesus to offer, Jesus for eternal life. Don't sell him out. So Mary, she honored Jesus. Judas devalued him. Mary worshiped Jesus. Judas sold him out. Mary had faith in Jesus. Judas had faith in himself. And that's where this is coming down Again, back in verse four, he was intending to betray him. This betrayal was not zealous confusion or a crime of passion. This was intentional. This was thought through. This is first degree intent on the part of Judas. Don't let anyone tell you it's any other way. Popular Christian teaching tries to water down the motives of Judas. John doesn't give us that option. Judas was evil. He made evil choices. Judas was demon uh, oppressed, he would be Satan possessed ultimately. In fact, in chapter 13, we'll see that. Satan will enter Judas. Satan doesn't enter anyone that doesn't want him to. Why are you getting on Judas so much? Because this intention needs to be understood. Again, juxtaposed to Mary, you've got Mary on the one hand, Mary who's just loving Jesus, who has faith in Jesus, and you have Judas who has faith only in himself, and this bubbles up to the surface. This is the first time actually that we see Judas. It's, it's hinted to before, earlier by John. But this is the first time that we actually see Jude, the, the intent, that murderous intent of Judas kind of pop up. Almost like he couldn't control it, like I said before, in the presence of Jesus, your heart's gonna show. 
Your heart's gonna reveal what's going on. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. You can try to keep the heart under wraps, but ultimately Jesus will show up and it will surface. And that's what we see with Judas. And Jesus knew that Judas' heart would reveal itself. In fact, back in John chapter six, verse 70, Jesus said, now get back to the question about did God predestine Judas to go to hell as the betrayer? Listen very carefully. Jesus said in verse 70 of John six, did I myself not choose you, the 12? And one of you is a diabolos, a devil. Listen to that very clearly. Jesus said, did I not myself choose you the 12 and one of you is a devil? Jesus chose a devil, chose him to be among the disciples. And again in John 17, verse 12, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, Jesus said, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. What scripture? Is he predestined for that? Did he have to betray Jesus? My friends, first of all, the scripture is Psalm 41, verse nine that Judas fulfilled. I'll read it to you. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And there's your answer to the question. Did Jesus choose Judas to betray him? No. Jesus chose Judas to be his friend. That was the choice. Jesus chose Judas to be among the 12 to give him three and a half years of love, friendship, discipleship, and every opportunity to choose him in return. Judas chose to betray him. Now, Jesus knew he would. God knew he would. All the way back to David in Psalm 41, David prophesied that he would. There would be a betrayer. So this has been, it was scripturally fulfilled. God was fully aware that Judas was gonna make this choice. And so in that awareness, what did he do? I'm gonna get a hold of the betrayer and pull him as close to me as possible so that he can see me and know me and love me and change his mind even though Jesus knew he wouldn't. Jesus chose Judas as a friend. And in verse eight, when Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, I think he's looking right at Judas when he says, but you do not always have me. Judas, you don't always have me. The fragrance of faith filling the house and the stench of betrayal rising up. And all of this in the midst of it all is Jesus. Last thing I'll tell you, Mary anointed Jesus from head to toe and she wiped his feet with her hair. You know what that means? It means for the whole rest of the night, Mary smelled like Jesus. It was a shared fragrance between her and her Lord. And 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. That, you're gonna smell like death to some people. But to the other, an aroma from life to life, you're gonna smell like life to some people. If you love Jesus, if you follow him, and if you live by his standard, not our culture's, 
This whole abortion issue, last thing I'll say on this, this is a dividing line, not between Republican and Democrat, but between follower of Jesus and not. Now, some of you, if you think you're pro-choice, again, I know that's offensive. I'm saying it to you because you need to hear the truth that to be pro-abortion is not pro-Jesus. And if you disagree, again, come talk to me. Let's look at scripture together. But I am so sick and tired of Christians and the church soft-pedaling the truth because it's easier that way. We need to be honest. We are the aroma of Christ. And that does mean some are gonna smell us and go, smells like death. And they're gonna get angry and vitriolic and hateful about it because the heart emerges when Jesus is present. And some are gonna smell you and go, what is that? That smells like life. I want that. And they will be saved. Then Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, and who is adequate to these things? I love that he added that. Because I'm the aroma of Jesus. And he says, who's adequate to that? And I'm like, (laughs) not me. I have plugins because I am not adequate to being a good aroma. (laughs) Who's adequate to this? And then Paul answers his own question in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 3, 4. He says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You will have the aroma of Christ because he will put that on you. What do you do in return? Just honor him. Worship him, trust him. Right now, Jesus calls all of us to be his friend, to come out of the stench of sin and into the sweet fragrance of faith. And the question is, what are you gonna choose? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word to us this morning. I know, Lord, not a typical Mother's Day sermon, (laughs) but I pray that our mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and friends will be blessed in the truth. I pray, Father, we will be a fellowship that stands in the truth, not hatefully, not arrogantly, but in love, that we would not compromise on what is of value to you. Father, I I pray for this country because we have a lot to answer for when it comes to the murder of innocence. And I pray that you would forgive our foolishness and that you would right this country. But even if you don't, Lord, help us to stand with you and to trust you. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll move among us. And if there's anybody who feels like they're living with a Judas heart, that they would understand that you are reaching out saying, you don't always have me. And I pray this morning a choice would be made for Jesus. If that's you as we pray, I do invite you to raise your hand. If you want Jesus this morning, if perhaps you felt like you were living in betrayal of him, but you wanna be right with him, would you just raise up your hand this morning? All right. Well, God, we trust you to take your words and move among us. And not only among us, but we pray this fragrance would go far beyond this moment. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.